Well, hey, good morning, y'all. Y'all doing well? Doing good? It's good to see y'all. You know, second service, no pressure, but when I talk to them, they actually talk back. You know, they <laughs> let me know how they're feeling, sometimes even unprompted. It's kind of weird. Uh, but uh, hey, so we're in the third week of this series that we've titled Awakening, and I just kind of thought that maybe it would be a good time to ask this question. Are you there yet? <laughs> like, are you there yet? Not that I'm asking if you've actually experienced a, a spiritual awakening yet, but have you reached that point that we've been talking about, the, the point of desperation? Like, if you're honest with yourself, have you been praying consistently and fervently for revival? Like, can you live without revival? Like, that's the question I'm asking this morning. Can you live without revival? Is, is revival as a subject, as a topic, as an idea, only something you think about when you come to church and the pastor's talking about it? Or when you read about it in the paper or a, a friend or family member brings it into the conversation? Like, is the idea of revival something that you could either take or leave? Can you live without revival? Because the truth is, guys, as long as we are content to live without revival, we will. Like As long as we are content to live without revival, we will. Like we should, as a church and as individuals, be praying for a spiritual discontentment in our soul. Like we should be praying that God would change our longings, change our desires. We should come before Him and say, God, I don't like what's in my heart. Like I don't like the pettiness I chase after and the weak things that I long for. God, give me that great sense of discontentment. God, bring me to a point of brokenness. You see, the truth is most Christians only pray to be blessed. It's few who pray to be broken. But those few are the ones that God can start a fire with. The, the rest of us can warm ourselves around. Like I believe, like I've said every week, that we are at the very door of either national revival or national judgment. That's how desperate our times are. Like it's time to cry out to God in desperation. Last week we saw how King Josiah re responded to his moment of desperation. After all, I mean, if you're made king at eight years old, you better pray. Like if you're an eight-year-old king following a wicked king in Judah after the northern kingdom has already fallen, knowing that judgment is coming, you had better pray. And Josiah, as we saw last week, took God seriously. Josiah took sin seriously. He took obedience seriously. We're told that he had an awakening in the eighth year of his reign. He's 16 years old. While he was yet a boy, he began to seek the Lord. Now we can be confident, as we've said each week also, that what prompted Josiah 
seeking the Lord was the Lord seeking Josiah. Right? God always makes the first move. As we saw in that first sermon, Jonathan Edwards, the leader of the First Great Awakening, wrote, when God is about to bestow some great blessing on His church, it is often His manner to show His church their great need of it and to bring them into distress for want of it and to put them upon crying earnestly to Him for it. And so my question, guys, is what will it take? What will it take for you to be desperate? Like what will it take for you to be desperate enough to seek the Lord? You see, in revival, God always makes the first move. He brings us to that point of distress, that point of desperation. Let me, let me show you what I mean in Isaiah chapter 6, and I would ask that y'all stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. Guys, if, if you've ever read through or you're planning on reading through in your reading plan this year, I know I'm a couple months out from this in my reading plan, but if you've ever read through or are planning to read through the book, the magnificent book of the prophet Isaiah, there is one thing that you can be confident about. God made the first move. God made the first move. Like We have this incredible book like all of these amazing prophecies and the events of Isaiah chapter 6 because God is the one who made the first move. Like Isaiah, uh, by the way, if you, if you know who he is, does not match the kind of the character or the image that we have of sort of a John the Baptist uh, like prophet crying in the wilderness, you know, eating on a strange diet of locusts and honey. Like he's not the guy who's like sitting outside of the gate 
like cooking his food with dung. Like that's not this guy. Like Isaiah uh, was a frequent visitor both to the royal court and to the temple of God. Like his long ministry was greatly honored at different times during the reign of four of the kings of Judah. Three of them were good and one of them was bad. Like by all accounts, Isaiah is a really faithful man of God. He is like what you'd call a holy man. Like that's Isaiah. And so his response to seeing the Lord is not at least what modern readers of the Bible would expect. Like we we come to the Bible with these expectations that, you know, our status is just a little lower than the angels. Right? We're, we're pretty good. Certainly way better than the people around us. And so when God calls us into His presence, we just think we're going to climb up into His lap and everything's going to be cool. Right? We're going to get to heaven and just give big Jesus a big hug. Like it's all going to be good. Like modern readers look at this passage and they don't know what to do with it. Like here this holy man, this righteous man, this man who up to this point seems to have been doing everything right, pleasing the Lord, when he sees the Lord, he is undone. You know, I think we live in a, an age where nothing lives up to the hype. Like I want you to think of the thing right now or in the past that you maybe used to long for the most. Like when you were a young man or a young woman, what did you long for the most? Maybe it was your wedding day? Like that special day when you finally married him or married her? Maybe it's your marriage or, you know, or having a family? Maybe it's an experience, something that you longed for in the past. It could either be good or it could be wicked. It could be, you know, friendships or intimacy or just sex. It could be the trip of a lifetime, financial independence, a promotion, retirement, whatever. Or maybe it's a material thing like a house or a car or a pool or something like that. Think about that thing that you used to long for the most that you finally got. The truth is that the experience of having rarely lives up to, if ever, the experience of getting. Like we long for something, we build it up in our mind, we think and imagine and fantasize what it would be like if I went there or had that or knew Him or whatever. And ultimately, it doesn't measure up to our longing. It doesn't match the picture that we have in our head. It disappoints. Like we get it. Like we get the thing that we've longed for and it is less, not more. It has sharp edges to it that we weren't expecting. Like when we gain what we most desire, we end up thinking less of it. Hear this. God is the exception to that rule. He is always more. He's never less. Like the greatest and loftiest idea you could have in your mind right now of God does not touch the fringe of His garment. If you get a true glimpse of Him, and when you get a true glimpse of Him, you end up thinking less, not of Him, but of you.
Here's what I want. Here's what I want you to see and get and gain and walk away with from the call of Isaiah the prophet. Here it is. True revival will begin for us as we awaken to God's holiness. Like holiness is a lost concept today. Like the idea of talking about holiness is it's just so gone. It's so past. It's so it's almost embarrassing. Like you don't want to be one of those holiness preachers any more than you want to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Like you certainly don't want to be like, you know, Jesus or Paul or John or Peter or Isaiah. But guys, we need to awaken to God's holiness. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I mean, the readers of this, the Jewish readers of this are amazed at these words. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Like Uzziah, this king, died about a hundred years before Josiah, the guy we studied last week, became king. He was a, he was a righteous king for Judah who gave the, the kingdom a glimpse of its glory days. Like during his long reign of over 50 years, as people saw what was happening in Judah, they were like, this is the way it's supposed to be. Like this is a king. Like he was a great leader and he brought stability to the kingdom. He started well, but then later in his life, due to pride, he ended poorly. And many of y'all know the sad story of how his life ended. And as... Sad as that was, he led the kingdom well, and so it would be only normal in light of what they had experienced with the succession of kings that Uzziah's death would stir a sense of instability and anxiety. And so God chooses this very moment to reveal Himself to Isaiah. Like the earthly throne of Judah is vacant, and Isaiah has a vision of a throne that will never end with someone seated on it whose glory fills the whole earth. His king, Uzziah, is dead. But Isaiah sees another king, the ultimate king, the one seated on the throne of eternity. As you look at the story of the former king, Uzziah, we know that that turning point in his life came when he entered the temple and he thought that he was good enough as king to take the role of a priest and offer incense, burn it before the Lord. And he ends up, God strikes him with leprosy. He had lifted himself up because of his pride and God brought him low. And upon his death, Isaiah has a vision of a different king whose lifting up would never be an overstep. Like the idea of the elevation of the throne, it conveys the authority and the superiority of the one who is seated on this throne. The one whose robe, the train of his robe, fills the entire temple. The temple was the concentration point of God's presence on the earth. It represented the rule of God coming down. And for just a moment in the year that King Uzziah died, that earthly symbol merged 
with the heavenly reality. As the earthly king lay dying, the true sovereign of the entire universe was reigning. Yahweh was holding court and inviting Isaiah to see it. I mean, I I imagine this moment like all of Isaiah's senses are in high alert. Sounds, sights, smells. Like he is fully immersed in this moment. And he records above him, the one seated on the throne, were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Like these angelic attendants... (laughs) The seraphim are mentioned only here in the Bible by that name. And we don't know if that name is a title or if it's just a description. Like it literally means burning ones. Like that is what is flying around the throne, covering its eyes, covering its feet, flying before the presence of God. These burning ones. Here are creatures so otherworldly. And guys, hear this terrifying, terrifying that you would be tempted to either flee from them or worship them. Like we see at a couple instances in the Bible where when an angel appears, people fall down to worship it. And certainly these beings are so extreme that they would be tempted to Isaiah would be tempted to worship them, and yet, they won't even look upon the One who is seated on the throne. Like, they're in the presence of God, but they're not taking advantage of it by just oogling it, just taking it in, just in amazement. Instead, they are so as sinless angels, angelic beings, spiritual beings, they won't even look upon the one seated on the throne, like four of their six wings are devoted to covering themselves because of the unapproachable glory of that one that they serve. They are hovering in constant motion, ready to do His will. Like it kind of reminds me, this picture reminds me of Moses when he steps up to the burning bush and he hears that voice saying, Take off your shoes from on your feet. For the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. Like they know that they are in the presence of undiluted holiness. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. These seraphim, they're, they're living flames of nuclear powered praise. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Like he was awakened to the holiness of God. When you think of God as holy, what comes to your mind? Like C.S. Lewis writes, How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. So what does holy mean? Well, primarily, like the word holy means to separate. Like it comes from a word that means to cut or to separate. It could be used this way as something being a cut above. 
And although it has come to mean moral or moral perfection or moral wholeness, it means so much more than that. It means set apart in in every area, every arena of life. It means to be set apart in a category of its own. Like literally, it means otherness. Like that's the idea of this word, the otherness of God. Like the godness of God. Some scholars describe it this way by using the term superlative to capture its meaning. Superlative means the highest quality or degree. It's taking something, anything, to the infinite degree. It's God's attributes of attributes. And so when we say that God is powerful, His power is holy power. When we say that God is good, His goodness is holy goodness. When we say that God is just, His justice is holy justice. Like it's taking justice to the ultimate degree. Goodness, love, mercy, wrath to the ultimate degree. It's the godness of God. And what's the significance of the seraphim saying it three times? Holy, holy, holy. Well, in Scripture, magnitude is conveyed by doubling a word or by repetition of that word. While holiness can be said of these seraphim, Yahweh's holiness is unequaled. He is holy to the power of three. Ray Ortland writes this, holy, holy, holy is not just repetition. It's emphasis. It isn't one plus one plus one. It's perfection times perfection times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes Him absolutely even from the sinless angels. His holiness is simply His Godness. And He is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Each word boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. No other threefold adjective appears in all of the Old Testament. It makes a unique linguistic contrivance to convey meaning beyond its meaning as the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. Like, I love that. Like, have you ever been in prayer in a time of personal worship and just wished, just longed for a new language? Like you wished your vocabulary would increase because you don't have the words to communicate the greatness of God. He continues, God is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. He is holy. You see, God is always more. He's never less. Like I remember as a, a, a young pastor, I just graduated from Columbia. I was single serving in North Carolina and I finally had time with my small youth group to read books that weren't assigned to me. 
Like I'd read tons and tons before I went to college. And then while I was in college, I was reading so much, but it could only be the books that were assigned to me. Finally, I got to read some books that were unassigned. And one of the first books I read that fall of 1989 was The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. One of, I mean, guys, it's one of my top ten books of all time. It just rocked me to my core. In fact, I thought, how did I get out of Bible college without having this kind of encounter? With this kind of experience? With understanding God at this depth? In that book, Sproul writes, only once in sacred Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that He is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Sproul goes on to say that nowhere in, nowhere in Scripture do you read that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, 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 but only that He is holy, holy, holy. Guys, this is God, not as mere concept, but this is God as He truly is. If you bring, if you bring God as a concept into your life, you will shape that concept. But if God reveals Himself, He shapes you. Like he changes you. Like that's what Isaiah experienced. First, he awakened to God's holiness, and then he awakened to his own sinfulness. And we need to do the same. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now remember, this isn't some bozo on the streets of Jerusalem who's been living a quasi-Jewish life. Like this isn't just some spiritual loner who thinks he can approach God on his own terms. This is Isaiah ben Amaz. Like this is the prophet. Like this is the one who wrote the 53rd chapter that we all love so much of his book. Like Isaiah, the holy man of God, says, Woe to me. By the way, those are the very first words spoken by Isaiah in this book. His very first words that he speaks himself in this book pronounce a prophetic woe upon himself. Because that's what it is. On the lips of a prophet, woe is an announcement of doom. And from this point up through the first five chapters of this book, God Himself has pronounced woes on the nation of Israel because of their sin. And now He cries out, Woe to me! Calling down a curse of God upon His own head. Like Isaiah sees the Lord and he pronounces judgment now, not on the nation of Israel, but on himself. 
Like the, as Sproul says in his great, great book, the doorposts of the temple are not the only thing that was shaking. Like Isaiah was shaking. Like he sees God and in that light, he sees himself probably for the very first time. Like in the light of God's glory, it exposes like the reality of his own heart. It's kind of like when you're cleaning your house and you've done such an incredible job. Everything looks good until you open up the curtains and the blinds and you see, oh my goodness, I need to start over. Like my, my wife, we have this vacuum that has this light on it that's green. And so it's so fun to vacuum in the dark because you just see so much junk but I don't want to put that light on me, right? Kind of like those mirrors that magnify your face. When you're young, that's great. When you're old, not so much, right? It exposes every line, every blemish, every wrinkle, every imperfection. And so he cries out, I am ruined. I love the King James here where he says, I am undone. To be undone means to, to come apart. It seems like Come apart at the seams like to be unraveled. That's what's happening to his life. Like, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been in the presence of God and you left there like unraveled, undone, broken? Because that's what will always happen. If we have a, a time where we properly like focus our attention and contemplate the holiness of God, it will result in a humble awareness of our own sinful complicity. Up to this point, Isaiah was a prophet among sinners. And now he sees that he is a sinner among his own people. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm just like everyone else. I'm not the exception. I'm not a step above. I'm not the solution to the problem here. I am the problem here. The world doesn't need revival. I need revival. Our nation doesn't need to be awakened. I need to be awakened. I mean, this is like John, the disciple in Revelation chapter 1 where he's on the Isle of Patmos and he hears this voice speaking behind him and he turns to see Jesus. The Jesus that he loved, his best friend, Jesus. But when he sees him in all his glory, he falls at his feet as if he's dead. I mean, this is Paul on the road to, to Damascus where he has been thinking that he was faithfully serving Yahweh until God speaks to him. And this bright light overshines him. And he's stricken blind. I mean, this is Peter after a dismal night of fishing, catching nothing, and then Jesus tells him, hey, let's set out again. Throw the net on this side of the boat. Let's see what we'll get. And Peter reluctantly does what Jesus tells him to do, and they bring in so much fish that the boat almost, almost sinks. And the response of Peter isn't, I need to take Jesus fishing more. <laughs> it's, he looks at Jesus and says, 
Get away from me, Lord. For I am a sinner. Guys, that's the right response when we really come into the presence of God. Get away from me, Lord. For I am a sinner. We need to awaken to our sinful complicity. And only then are we ready to awaken to His grace. Then one of the seraphim flew with me to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The holy God is also a, a God of holy grace. The same Gospel that wounds us by telling us the truth also heals us. Greg Laurie writes, God does not convict us of our sin so He can drive us away in despair. He convicts us of our sin to send us into the open arms of Jesus. Maybe the reason you don't think grace is amazing is because you think it's unnecessary. You don't think you deserve you need it. You, you don't deserve God's wrath. You're on His team. Like as long as we see ourselves like that, unless we have an awakening, and the cost of an awakening is traumatic self-discovery as we stand before an all-holy God, when the curtains are open and you see your filth, that's when you're ready to run into the open arms of Jesus. We need to be awakened to our sinful complicity. Then and only then will we awaken to His grace and finally we're ready to awaken to our mission. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. God says, I have a, a job for someone. And Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. And God says, oh, Wait a minute. I didn't give you a job description yet. But that, that doesn't matter to Isaiah. Just the thought that he, he could do for God who has just cleansed him of his guilt. It's like he's saying, God, if you're calling, I'm coming. I'm not walking. I'm running. Like Isaiah cannot believe that he would be even considered by God. Like he finally knows himself. He has been humbled and as if, it's as if as if the Lord is saying, I need a spokesman and not just anyone. Like I need someone who knows what it means to be forgiven. Who might that be? And we have a team that goes out, second service, knocking on doors. That team has one thing in common. They know that they've been forgiven. There are different degrees in their own sanctification. Some of them are newer believers. Some of them have been believers for decades, but they have that thing in common. They have been forgiven and they're taking that message to our city, to your neighbors. So Isaiah responds, Lord, could You possibly use me? Like we need to pray for that kind of holy desperation. We need to pray for a renewed awareness of God's holiness. Like, could you imagine just for a second being Isaiah in this moment? Like, that would be astonishing. 
Hundreds of years later, the Apostle John writes his Gospel, and in it, he quotes this vision from Isaiah chapter 6, and then he adds this insight. He's been talking about the ministry of Jesus and how some people won't listen to what he says. And he quotes Isaiah 6 and says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, speaking of Jesus, his glory and spoke of him. Church, understand this. John says that the Lord Almighty from Isaiah's vision was none other than Jesus. That the glory filling the temple, the glory filling all the earth was Jesus' glory. And that when Isaiah spoke, he was speaking of the pre-incarnate Jesus. The Lord of glory seated on the throne, high and exalted, the One from whom the seraphim would not even look upon, and so they veiled their faces. That One was Jesus. Will you join them? Will you join them in all-filled worship of Jesus, crying, holy, holy, holy. Will you join Isaiah and recognize, I am undone. And will you answer the call, here am I, send me, Lord. I don't mistake his zeal for self-confidence. He's God-confident. God, if you're calling, I'm coming. I'm not walking. I'm running. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to this table and we can't help but think about that burning coal taken from the altar placed on the lips of Isaiah the prophet as we think about these elements that we're about to place against our lips. With that burning coal, His guilt was taken away. And because of the sermon that these elements preach to us week after week after week, because of the, the message and the grace they represent, our guilt is taken away. Lord, we thank You for the cross. We thank You that on the cross of Jesus, the Holy One that Isaiah spoke of had Isaiah's guilt placed upon him and our guilt. Lord, we thank You for that grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.